0: Well, good morning. Uh, glad you could come, for those of you here. Um, for those of you online, I'm thankful for technology. Uh, as you may know, I'm a big proponent of it, so yes. Uh, I'm glad it means that uh, our congregation can, can gather from afar um, if they don't feel comfortable coming here. Um, let's just open up in a word of prayer uh, to begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come to you now. We thank you for this time that we have together, God. Um, to gather um, as people of your kingdom. We just ask you um, to work through uh, the message uh, that you've laid on my heart and uh, work through it, God, um, showing um, the congregation here at Auburn, um, those watching and those here, um, what your word says about you, about your son, and about the gift um, that you give us. Um, I just ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to take a few minutes uh, or a few, (laughs) not a few minutes, but a few seconds to think about um, things that bring you joy. Um, What are some of those things that come to mind? What are things that you can be joyful for? Things that might come to mind are maybe where you live, maybe the country we live in, maybe the house you have, the property you have. What about family? Family is another one that could come to mind. Maybe your family brings you joy, maybe food, or hobbies, even possessions, or your job. So why are we joyful for these things? Well, where we live, we live in a country that's relatively free. Maybe the house you have is is very nice, um, or you own lots of property that you like to um, maybe work, farm, or uh, enjoy. What about food? Well, we can enjoy making food. We can also enjoy sharing food. As it said, food brings us together. With it, we make friends and we court lovers. Hobbies. In hobbies, we can pursue, we can pursue our passions and interests. The casual woodworker can hone his skill, turning a block of wood, into functional items for his household. The hunter can use her skills and knowledge of the outdoors to track, call, and kill her prey, providing meals for her family from the land. The weekend athletes can gather together. They can gather and enjoy playing their favorite uh, sport uh, while also staying active and healthy. Possessions. Possessions can be uh, a source of joy, for example, the car enthusiast enjoys researching and tinkering on his classic, uh, prized classic car, taking care that all the maintenance is completed correctly and on time, so that he can take a road trip on the weekend. Maybe your job, you enjoy, uh, you enjoy it. It gives you a purpose. You also. Uh, get paid for it, which can be a bonus. As Christians, is there anything wrong with being joyful about these things? No. The Bible never speaks out against possessions or riches, per se. Instead, it warns against greed and misuse of this material wealth. It also speaks out about the fleetingness of these earthly things. This brings to mind two questions. Is there something that can bring us never-ending joy? And what should we be most joyful about? As we read, and this brings us to our verses that we'll be studying today. So Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 to 11 says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul opens up this portion of his letter to the Philippians, telling them to rejoice in the Lord. But why does he do this? It seems very strange it seems like a very strange way to open up the chapter, even more so, given the fact that Paul seems to jump directly from there into a warning. This is not the first time Paul has used this idea of rejoicing in the letter. Paul uses this turn of phrase uh, as a way of transitioning when Paul starts out this section of his letter outlining uh, doctrinal troubles that He is aware might plague the Philippian church, he starts with this statement: rejoice in the Lord. In a later chapter, Paul will also utilize this transition. We can note uh, that this is the first time, though, that Paul has qualified this statement. Paul tells the Philippians to rejoice. Why? Paul wants them to rejoice in the Lord. Paul wants them to rejoice in the Lord. Because the Lord is both the occasion and the source of their joy, Paul wishes to draw on this idea that if one source of joy is the Lord, then it is independent of adverse circumstances. If we think back to the first chapter of Paul's letter, we remember that Paul, when uh, even where he was imprisoned, takes joy in the fact that Christ is being preached and proclaimed, even at his expense. In chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, we read, Some indeed preach from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The, later, uh, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, uh, but, not sincerely but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that I in every way... Uh, sorry, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Even outside of Paul's example, I'm sure we've heard of, experienced, or know situations where Christians have displayed this joy outside of the specific circumstances that they are experiencing. Paul continues on with a rather strange turn of phrase after this command to rejoice. He says, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. In the first part of this phrase, Paul is simply saying that it's no trouble for him to keep repeating his command, that they should take joy regardless of their circumstances. It reminds me somewhat of Paul answering the rhetorical statement we sometimes say. You can say that again. And so he does. But what does Paul mean by his repetition uh, of this fact, being safe for us? This is where Paul connects the opening statement to the rest of the verses in chapter 3. Paul is stating that uh, that this repetition for them to rejoice in the Lord is safe for them because it safeguards them against the traps of those who would threaten to undermine the faith. Matthew Henry wrote, The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for the pleasures uh, with which the tempter baits his hooks. You see, the joy of the Lord provides safety for all believers. This joy can be a protection, resistance from attacks that take down others. When comparing this joy to the temptations of the world, those temptations seem dull and bland in comparison. From here, Paul then launches into a warning about those who wish to harm the faith of the Philippians and their church. In verse 2, we read, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. While it was no surprise that Paul spoke out against those who wanted to pervert the gospel, one of, his main, one of the main pain points for Paul was the Judaizers. Now, Judaizers uh, were those people who found it impossible to believe that God would offer the gift of salvation freely to those who believed. They were convinced that such an amazing gift had to require some sort of payment. That we can thank God for his gift of grace, but that we, mu- that we understand he expects us to do something in order to pay the debt off that we have accrued. The word Judaizer actually comes from the Greek verb meaning to live according to Jewish customs. A Judaizer taught that in order for a Christian to truly be right with God, he must conform to the Mosaic law. Circumcision, especially, was promoted as necessary for salvation. Gentiles had to become Jewish converts first, and then they could come to Christ. See, the doctrine of the Judaizers was a mix of grace through Christ and works through the keeping of the law. This false doctrine was dealt with in Acts 15 and strongly condemned in the book of Galatians. See, this verse takes direct aim at these people and their claims. In the, ri- the original language, these three insults would have been an alliteration and have a special effect on those he was speaking against. Paul took the insults that the Judaizers used against others and turned them around. So let's look at each of them. Dogs. So at the time of Paul writings, it wouldn't have been commonplace for people to have pets or domesticated dogs. Instead, the term would have brought about images of scavengers, almost like coyotes. These dogs would have fed on roadkill, rotting remains, and garbage. The term was often used as imagery for the unclean because of their indiscriminatory feeding, which drew parallels to those who didn't follow the Jewish dietary laws. For this reason, the term was often used to describe Gentiles. However, here, Paul uses it against the Judaizers, in essence, calling them unclean. Evildoers. As I outlined before, the Judaizers believed that you needed to follow Jewish laws and customs in order to pay God back for his grace. The second insult Paul uses here Calling upon those who attempt to follow the law evildoers is a rather ironic statement for those who claim to be doing the work of the law. Works of the law uh, was what separated the Jews from the Gentiles. Paul was basically saying that instead of doing the works of the law, these individuals were actually uh, evil workers. All of their focus on the works of the law were making them spiritual Gentiles and separate from the faith. Mutilators of flesh. The one thing the Judaizers held in high regard was that they were physically marked as different. Circumcision was the one thing that they drew great pride from. In his final of the three insults, Paul plays on this pride and lets them know that they are no better than those in 1 Kings known for their self mutilation their ultimate sign of being separate turned on them, showing that they were in no way better than those who they looked down upon for not being marked. After addressing those, uh, those who uh, looked to point the fingers at the Gentiles for not following the law, Paul drives home the point and the idea of the gospel in a th- similar three-point system. In verse 3, he says, Uh, For we are the circumcision who worship the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. As we heard read from Romans, Abraham was justified by his faith even before he was circumcised. Paul knew that the people who had true faith are circumcised of heart. Paul goes on to include himself in this statement, saying that we are the circumcision. Paul has flipped the script on the Judaizers, stating that the Christians are the new Jews, set apart, and that the Judaizers are the Gentiles. This idea that the true circumcision is of the the heart and a matter of faith and grace Paul goes on to outline three qualities of the true people of God. Worship, or focus upwards. You see, God's true followers have a focus upwards, and on upward service. They worship God. People who are in Christ are of a new creation, and this is evident by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This indwelling by the Spirit causes believers to become worshipers. As a result, worshiping by the Spirit frees us. Believers boast in Christ. As believers, we glory in Christ. When we worship by the Spirit, the natural progression is that we boast in Christ. Christ is our salvation, and because of this, he becomes our sole focus. Christ becomes the focus of our praise and worship, and as a result, we continually boast in what is accomplished on the cross. We also have an inward confidence. Paul concludes his three qualities by pointing out that God's true people have a confidence inward, spiritually you see, they have a confidence in Christ and not on outward physical things. Unlike the Judaizers, God's true people put no confidence in things of the flesh, but instead in Christ. We can't put our confidence in anything out, any outward manifestation of religion or on anything we can do ourselves. Because if we boast in Christ, we cannot depend on anything that we can do, or that's accomplished through the practices of men. In the next set of uh, verses, Paul goes on to illustrate all of these six points in contrast, uh, contrasting the Judaizers from God's true people, using himself as an example. You see, Paul outlines um, how he is the perfect example of fleshly achievement, both from a pedigree standpoint and from a performance standpoint. See, in, this, in these verses, Paul reverts back to his perception of himself as if uh, he were still Saul. This is more than likely how the Judaizers would have s- seen him. He, begri- he begins with a bold claim, asserting the fact that if you think you're good, I assure you, I'm better. Paul outlines how he is superior by way of birth and inheritance. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day in absolute compliance with the Abrahamic covenant. This meant he wasn't a convert that came from a pagan religion. Paul was in the club, as it were, from birth. Paul was also the descendant of people of Israel. This meant that not only was Paul not a convert, he wasn't the offspring or child of converts. He was was a purebred Israelite. Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Being part of the tribe of Benjamin was special. Benjamin was the only son who was born in the promised land. And this tribe was the only one to have remained faithful after the death of Solomon. The tribe of Benjamin was the core of of Jewish spirituality. In addition, Israel's first king, was King Saul. Paul's given name was originally Saul. Paul was the Hebrew of Hebrews, as he claims. Paul was a Hebrew, and his parents were also a Hebrew. Paul spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, when many Jews at the time only spoke Greek. This also meant that he was able to read the Scriptures in their original language. In addition to this, Paul's parents ensured that no expense was spared in his education and upbringing, having been educated under a famous rabbi. Paul's familial and upbringing was, go- uh, sorry, f- Paul's family and upbringing was gold. He had the background that Jews dreamed of. But Paul wasn't done there. He moves on to outline his superior personal achievements. You see, Paul was a Pharisee. At the time, the Pharisees were one of the most respected and impressive groups within Israel. The word Pharisee actually means separated one. They would often separate and distance themselves from persons and practices they deemed unclean, adhering strictly to the Mosaic Law. Though Paul volunteered for this position, his ancestors before him were also Pharisees. Paul was among the best within the Pharisees. Paul led and orchestrated the campaign against the early church. This campaign of terror achieved huge infamy. Paul was even present, uh, a present force who oversaw the execution of Stephen. Stephen. And for this, Paul was held in high regard by his people. Paul saw himself as blameless under the law as well. It's interesting to note that Paul refers to himself here as blameless and not sinless or perfect. You see, the Pharisees believed that through following the law to the letter, it provided rituals and practices for forgiveness and purification. Hence, Paul personally Would have believed himself to be blameless. Not only did Paul believe this, but his conduct, way of life, um, would have also led others, both Pharisees and Jews alike, to see him also in this way. You see, Paul was an all-star. When it came to things of the law and achievements of the flesh, he had it all. Paul prefaces verse seven and nine in this manner. In essence, saying to those who wish to insist upon following the law, listen to what I have to say. Because when it comes to the law, I'm the best at it. Verses uh, 7 to 9 say, But whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss Paul shocks his readers after outlining his superiority, both in things he controls and things he doesn't, he says he counts it all as a loss. It doesn't mean anything when compared to him knowing Jesus. Paul counts all of the things he and others previously valued as rubbish. But why? so that he can gain Christ and not depend on the flawed righteousness that comes from the flesh and from the law. Faith through Christ and righteousness from God surpasses it. It surpasses it by miles. It's worth noting that this is the only place in which Paul explicitly says, Christ is his Lord. He says Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul finishes off this portion of his letter um, by outlining why he values this personal relationship he has with Christ above all. Verses 10 to 11 say, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Why did he count it all as loss? Why did he count his gold-plated credentials and reputation as garbage? So that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, in these verses that we've read, Paul has poured out his passion for Christ. He's poured it out from the very start to the end. Paul starts off with commanding the Philippians to rejoice in Christ. Why? Because it protects them. It protects them, uh, as he goes on to outline, insulting the Judaizers, uh, turning their insults of the Gentiles on them. Paul then moves on to outline his credentials that would qualify him as a Hebrew of Hebrews, only to turn that on its head and call all the superiority he has gained by them and by these accomplishments as rubbish. He finishes with an impassioned plea that whatever happens to him, whatever he may experience, whatever he may have gained, That by any means possible, he may attain the resurrection from the dead, and this is something that we can take heart today. Right now, where we are, no matter where that may be, let's pray. Dear me, Father, we just we come to you now, God, and and we echo this plea, God. We echo um, the plea to rejoice. We ask for your, your help to rejoice, God, to be reminded to rejoice um, in all circumstances, in the circumstances we find ourselves now, um, in this pandemic, God, just looking for the, the, the good in it. We also ask, God, that we focus on Christ. We ask that you uh, continually point us, God, to the same plea that Paul has here you know, that by any means possible, we may attain the resurrection from the dead, God. And I just ask you to focus that uh, for us this week. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.